We're going to be in Psalm 10 this morning. We've just been working our way one psalm at a time this summer. We'll start our study in the book of Isaiah here in about a month. We started in Psalm 3. We'd already preached 1 and 2, but we started in Psalm 3, and we've made our way all the way to Psalm 10, just going one psalm at a time. We find ourselves yet in another heavy psalm, and I trust that by God's providence, this is the word that we need to hear. It may not be the word that all of us planned on hearing when we came in this morning, but it's the word that we need to hear because it's the word that he is speaking to us. Over the last couple of weeks, not unlike the past months and years, in the wake of El Paso, Dayton, Ohio, Chicago, not to mention various acts of evil around the world stage, news cycles are obsessed with the question, why? Why does a guy walk into a Walmart and kill 20 plus people? Why do ruthless dictators run over and ground into the earth their people the way that they do? Why? And they offer psychological profiles. We are not lacking for political commentary. For the kind of legislation, perhaps, that needs to be passed to prevent these kinds of things from happening again. We're not lacking for any amount of sociological analysis. I saw a stat earlier this week that it was 11 out of 12 or 13 out of 14, I can't remember. Mass shooters grew up without a father. It's an interesting stat. And yet, is that the reason? Why things like this happen? There's also no lack of books, television shows, movies that are committed to answering this question, why, and to in some way satisfying our own curiosity of criminal profiling shows, for instance. I clicked onto Netflix this week just to take a quick inventory. In just a couple of minutes, I saw Criminal Minds, Blacklist, Mine Hunter, Making of a Murderer. All of these are committed to this idea of criminal profiling that if we could just somehow get into the mind of these criminals, then we could understand why they do what they do. Perhaps some of you enjoy those kinds of shows. All those shows, though, are ultimately fiction. They don't work in real life. I hope you know that. It's really easy for a detective or a psychologist to operate with almost a level of godlike omniscience when you're the one writing the other character. It doesn't work that way in real life. There are things that we can't see. And though we might be able to observe human behavior, we are still left after centuries with this one question that has gone unanswered. Why? In Psalm 10, God profiles a wicked man and tells us why 
he does wicked things. That God is the chief profiler of all men everywhere. And that's because the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is, according to the author of Hebrews, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Those things that nobody's able to see. And it says, no creature is hidden from its sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that's what we see in Psalm 10. The word of God exposing the heart of the wicked. If you're taking notes, here's the big idea. It's my sermon in a sentence. And so, as I often say, if I called you at three o'clock in the morning and I said, hey, what did I preach on? This would be the answer that, that you should give. This is what Psalm 10 is all about. God alone is king. He sees the wicked and will deliver justice. God alone is king. He sees the wicked and will deliver justice. Let's turn our attention to Psalm 10. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked man does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. And as for his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see and you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. And the nations perish from his land. Oh Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. 
so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. As we read it, he is speaking to us, and it is without error we can trust it. May he, by the power of his spirit, write it on our hearts so that we would walk in it to his glory. We're going to see three things in this psalm. In verse 1, we're going to see a hard question asked. A hard question asked. And then in verses 2 through verse 11, we're going to see a wicked heart exposed. A wicked heart exposed. And then in verses 12 through 18, at the end of the psalm, we're going to see a godly hope revived. A godly hope revived. Three things. A hard question asked. A wicked heart exposed. And a godly hope revived. Just look at verse 1. Why? He asks, why? Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? One of the things that I love about the Psalms is it gives us permission to be a big, hot mess. That it gives us permission to pray the kinds of prayers that we would never pray in a group of other Christians for fear of being judged. It gives us permission by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to ask God hard questions and to not fear reproach. Why? Why? Perhaps some of you in the last couple of weeks have asked those kinds of questions as you've considered what happened in El Paso. As you've considered what happened in Dayton, Ohio, or perhaps what you've considered happening in your own life, your own biography. Why? The Bible gives us permission to ask God hard questions. Not to be Christians with shiny, happy faces. And not to be Christians that have all of the answers. That the Bible gives us permission to say, I'm not God, but God is God. And to answer hard questions with, I don't know. I don't know. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts higher than my thoughts. And yet at the same time, there's two ways that we can ask the question, why? We can ask the question, why, like a prosecuting attorney, already convinced of God's guilt in the matter and seeking to show him guilty. And so we offer arguments in our why for why God is acting unjustly and why we are right to stand in judgment over his acting or in our perception, not acting. That would be, as Jono prayed in the prayer of confession, a sinful and a blasphemous way to speak to God. We do not stand in judgment over God. God stands in judgment over us. But there's a second way to ask the hard question, why? It's not to ask like a prosecuting attorney. It's to ask God why in the same way that a child asks a father why. Two of the most common questions in my house are, can I have a snack? And why? We're not going to do that. May I have a snack? No. Why? 
And as a father, it is my prerogative, according to my wisdom, to decide how much I will reveal to my children as to why. And there are times where in my wisdom I choose to reveal much, and there's times in my wisdom that I choose to conceal much, because I'm the dad and they're not. And it's the same way with us as children going to the father. There are times where as his children, we go, why? I don't get it. Why? What are you doing? Why? And there are times where in his word, he reveals himself and he is kind and gracious to do so. And there's times in which he conceals himself and he is kind and gracious to do so because he is God and we are not. He's the dad. We're the children. That's how David is approaching God in verse one. He's approaching with the faith of a child, recognizing that there is an answer to why, and God knows what that answer is, though God may not give him the answer. Why, he says, does it seem that you are far off? Why does it seem that you hide yourself? And yet in humility, recognizing that perception is not always reality, especially when you're thinking about and dealing with God who is incomprehensible. And so he begins this psalm asking a question in faith, not like a prosecuting attorney, but asking God why, like a child asks a father, knowing that the father knows why. And we begin to see our answer under the inspiration of the spirit unroll in the following verses. And so We've seen in verse 1 a hard question asked, but now in verses 2 through 11, we're going to see a wicked heart exposed. In fact, if you just glance at these 10 verses, what you'll see is that they're divided into two halves, each half comprised of five verses. And each half ends with the statement, he says in his heart. Do you see that? In verse 6, He says in his heart, verse 11, he says in his heart, each one of those phrases concludes a section. So we've got two sections, verses two through six, and then again, verses seven through 11. And this is what we see in verses two through six, or in both of these, rather, we're going to see God exposing the diseased hearts of the wicked. That at the focus of both both of these are his hearts. Heart. That's the focal point. That in each section, the the rotten fruit of the wicked is going to be traced back to the rotten root of the heart. And the reason for this is because the Bible understands the heart to essentially work like the steering wheel for every person. That in it is is the foundation of all of our desiring It motivates why we do everything that we do, and it steers us in one direction or another. That's why the proverb says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Of course, the negative is also true. If you fail to keep your heart with vigilance, then it may be that it won't be life springing forth from your heart. It may be death itself springing forth, and that's what Jesus affirms. That the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. 
And so God has begun his examination. He's begun exposing why wicked men do wicked things. And in verse 6 and verse 11, he gives us a hint. He says, in his heart. And we're going to see two things about the heart of the wicked. In verses 2 through 6, in that first section, we're going to see that they have proud hearts. And then in verses 7 through 11, we're going to see that they have presumptuous hearts. They have proud hearts and they have presumptuous hearts. Let's consider that first section, verses 2 through 6. That the wicked has a proud heart. Look at how the actions of the wicked are described. Verse 2, he's described as arrogant. You see that there? That he has an excessive sense of self-importance. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of him all. But the wicked deny this. In the mind of the wicked man, he is not a God-made man. He is a self-made man. And in his mind, that makes him a superior man. But he's not just arrogant. Verse 3, he's also boastful. He doesn't just have an excessive sense of self-importance. He has an excessive sense of self-satisfaction, specifically with his own desires. Specifically, he is proud to be greedy for gain. And this is the thing about wicked men. Wicked men are deceived into thinking that their vices are really virtues. I don't know how many of you have seen that movie in the 80s, Oliver Stone movie, Wall Street. It was out in 1987, before some of you were even born. Has Charlie Sheen and Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas plays a character named Gordon Gecko, And Gordon Gecko is, is supposed to be kind of indicative, representative of all of the high-powered traders who ran the financial markets like they were masters of the universe. Of course, this is No less relevant today, but was certainly relevant in 1987. And in one famous scene, Gordon Gekko delivers a speech to the nervous shareholders of Teldar Paper Corporation. This is what he says. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit, which is survival of the fittest. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Greed is good. Wicked men boast and their sinful desires. And they're deceived into thinking that their vices are really virtues. This is the mindset of a man who boasts in his desires. He boasts because he believes it's a good thing to never be content, to never be satisfied, to always want more. And in his greed, he will grind the poor to the ground to get what he wants. So he is boastful, but he's also verse four proud. You see that there, the pride of his face, a proud heart, not only refuses to seek God, but denies that he even exists. All of his thoughts are there is no God. The Bible says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 
But the proud man says, let the one who boasts, boast in himself. Friends, you cannot have it both ways. You can boast in the Lord or you can boast in yourself, but you cannot do both. To boast in the Lord is to deny yourself, but to boast in yourself, according to verse 4, is to deny the Lord. And so he is proud. Not only that, verse 5, he is puffed up. That whoever comes against him, he puffs up his chest at them. The wicked man has not only been deceived into thinking that his views or his vices are virtues, but that his success makes him untouchable. He is invincible. He's Tony Montana in Scarface. And all of this rotten fruit springs from an evil heart that says, verse 6, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This is what a proud heart looks like. A proud heart is a wicked heart because it leads us to think too highly of ourselves and to think too lowly of God and others. A proud heart, as we see in this section, leads a man to curse and renounce the Lord. Verse 3, it Leads a man to act as if there is no God, verse 4. And a proud heart blinds us to God and his judgments, verse 5. In other words, proud hearts produce functional atheists. Do you have a proud heart? How do you even know? What kind of questions can you ask? X-ray questions to get into your own life. Asking the question, do I have a proud heart? One question would be, do I think or act or speak as if I am in any way superior to other people? Intellectually, financially, Perhaps for many of us who are middle class, not all of us, that may be the case, but for many of us, we are right in the middle, middle class people, and we consider ourselves as those who have worked hard to get where we are. I wonder, as you see somebody who is trapped in a cycle of poverty, is your first thought that they're lazy? It's true that sometimes poverty is the result of sinful laziness, but that isn't always the case. Sometimes people are poor simply because of the providence of God. Other times people are poor because they've been trampled into the ground by those who have much. But I wonder if your first inclination is, they're so lazy. If they would just work harder. Do you think yourself superior to others? You might have a proud heart. Do you ever think... Of standing before God as his judgment. Does that ever cross your mind? That for every word and every act and every deed. You will stand and give an account. To Christ Jesus when he comes. If the answer is no. I never think about that. That never crosses my mind. Then it may be true in verse 5. That his judgments are on high out of your sight. And you have a proud heart. All of our life in this life until the end is to be governed by a long distance view of 
God's impending judgment and of standing before him. We see that all through the Bible. Of persevering in this life faithfully, knowing that Christ is coming to judge. And if you never think about that, if that never crosses your mind, of standing before God in his judgment, then you might have a proud heart. Or thirdly, do you come in on a gathering like this and do you, do you sing praises? Do you say the right things? Do you do all of the right outward things? But, but when Monday morning hits or when you go to work, there's really no discernible difference between you and your non-believing co-workers and neighbors in the way that you speak, in the way that you act, in the way that you spend and the things that you value and the things that you hope in and the things that you boast in and the things that you praise? Is there no discernible difference? Where God, other than when you gather on Sunday morning, is altogether absent from your life and you look at it and you go, there's just kind of a functional atheism there. Well, if you trace that backwards, it may be because you have a proud heart. And though you confess all the right things, your life says there is no God. Do you have a proud heart? Brothers and sisters, all of us in one way or another wrestle with pride. And the only thing that can humble us in the way that we need to be humbled is the cross of Jesus Christ. Is to view the humiliation of the one who created all things and to whom all things belong. That he would humble himself to the point of death becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross for us. That the cross of Christ burns out our pride. We cannot look at Jesus and we cannot consider his cross and remain prideful people. It incinerates pride. That's why we try when we preach and sing and pray to always be looking at Christ and his cross and his resurrection so that we might be humbled in the face of such a glorious and a gracious savior. So the wicked man has a prideful heart. But we also see in verses 7 through 11 that the wicked man has a presumptuous heart. We see this in two ways. We see that he has violent speech and we see that he has violent deeds. In verse 7, he's, he has violent speech. And in verses 8 through 11, or 8 through 10, violent deeds. This is what David says. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He is marked by violent speech. I don't know whether you knew this, but humans are to blame for most of the wildfires in America each year. In 2007, over $2 billion were spent in costs associated with putting them out. Human-caused fires burn an area larger than Delaware and Rhode Island combined each year. Some of you may remember in 2012, up in northeastern Oklahoma, 58,500 acres were consumed by wildfire. 376 homes were destroyed. Hundreds of people were left homeless. And what was the cause they discovered? It was a single cigarette. The Bible says that a wicked tongue is like a carelessly discarded cigarette. In a dry forest. 
It is like a spark that ignites violence and consumes everything around it. That's why James says the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell itself. James 3.6. So most of us, when we look at the news or we look at the world around us, we are shocked and we are grieved, rightly so, by physical violence. Perhaps we underappreciate the power of verbal violence. Perhaps we're somewhat desensitized to it. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't stand out to us in the same way. Perhaps it's kind of like white noise to us. And the reason is, is because it's so common. But it's interesting to note that the most common form of violence in the Psalms isn't perpetrated by weapons, but by words. C.S. Lewis was shocked to discover this. In his helpful little book on the Psalms, he said this. He says, I think that when I began to read it, these surprised me a little. I'd have expected that in simpler and more violent age, that is the age in which David is writing, when more evil was done with the knife, the big stick, and the firebrand, less would be done by talk. But in reality, the psalmists mention hardly any kind of evil more often than this one, which the most civilized societies share. It is all over the Psalter. One almost hears the incessant whispering, tattling, lying, scolding, flattery, and circulation of rumors. No historical readjustments are required. In other words, he's saying David might as well be writing about us. Since the Psalms were written, human society may have changed, but human hearts have not. Verbal violence was and is the most destructive force on the planet. It has done more than any tank, any missile has ever done. And there is none of us who are righteous. No, not one. That's how Paul speaks about the universal scope in Romans 3. And when he does, he strings together, cobbles together a bunch of Old Testament quotations to support this point, this idea that there's none righteous, no, not one. And you know what he does? One of the, one of the Old Testament references that he cobbles together is Psalm 10.7. David applies Psalm 10.7 to the wicked man. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, applies ten, Psalm 10.7 to every man. Every man is wicked in this way, apart from the grace of Christ. That means that you and I, at this point, need to not just consider the wicked as that guy over there. But we have to turn our righteous gaze in on ourselves because that's what God's word does in applying Psalm 10, seven. One of the things that I enjoy or I is helpful to me pastorally is listening to the members of our church, pray prayers of praise and prayers of confession by prayers of praise. I love hearing what are the things that our church is thinking about? How are they thinking about God? What are some of the common patterns and themes that are emerging? And so this summer, I've been really encouraged to hear some of the things that you've been learning in your summer studies work themselves out in the prayers of praise. 
And we've been praising God in ways that perhaps we haven't always been praising God. Praise God for that. That you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of God in Christ. But I also am intrigued and helped by our prayers of confession. And over time, you can begin to pick up patterns of what is it that our church and the members of our church seem to struggle with the most. What are those things that the members of our church are confessing both for themselves and for other members in this church? Perhaps emerge from conversations with one another and so on and so forth. And it's interesting, one of the things that emerges more often than not in the prayers of confession that are prayed by the members of this church is anger and angry speech. In the way that we speak to others at work, in the way that we speak to our spouses, in the way that we speak to our children, it comes up time and time again. Brothers and sisters, this is not an irrelevant point for this church. And that is from your own mouths. And so we would be wise to listen to God's word at this point and consider two things. Number one, we need to look to God's judgment and tremble. Matthew 12, Jesus says, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word. Nobody in this room may know what happens in your home behind closed doors, but God knows. And it will all be exposed and revealed and laid bare at his coming judgment. We need to look to God's judgment and tremble. But we also, secondly, need to look to Christ and trust. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever walked this planet for whom Psalm 10:7 has never been true. Peter writes, he committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Might as well be quoting Psalm 10:7. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ's sinless life and atoning death on the cross has two consequences for every believer, according to the apostle Peter. Number one, that we die to sin. We have been crucified with him. Our sin has been laid on him and his life is now ours. Our sin has been crucified and put to death. Secondly, that we might live to righteousness. This is union with Christ language. That if you are one who has put your faith in Christ, that you have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, then you have been spiritually united to Christ. Paul puts it this way, that you have died with him, you have been buried with him, and that you have been raised with him to new life. You're not the same person coming out of the grave that you were going into the grave with Jesus. His life is now your life. And your sin was laid on him and brought death. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And yet I fear that there are many of us in the deepest recesses of our hearts are convinced that I'll never be able to change the way that I talk. I'll never be able to stop what's in my heart from coming out of my mouth. And I say, hogwash, if you are in Christ, he is changing and transforming your heart, giving you brand new desires by the power of his grace. And he is able 
to utterly transform you to the very core of who you are. So that no longer rotten fruit comes from a rotten core, but good fruit comes from a good core. One that has been united to Christ and shares his life. Friends, we don't think and meditate on Christ enough. We don't return to the promises of the gospel and the glory of his grace enough. And we need to be reminded time and again that if we are those who have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, we have been united to Christ and we have died to sin and we can now live to righteousness. In Christ, Psalm 10:7 doesn't have to be true of you anymore. Its power has been broken. Oh, we got to know that as a church. Lest we walk around like functional atheists in our homes and in our workplaces from Monday through Saturday. But we see here that the wicked man is not just violent words. It's also violent deeds. Verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 and 9, we see that the wicked man is treacherous and calculated. That he hides, ambushes, then murders helpless people. Either by taking away their life or by taking away their livelihood. And then in verse 10, as a result, the helpless are crushed. They sink down or literally are drowned and they are destroyed. That this man flexes his power, whether it be financially, whether it be socially, whether it be intellectually, whatever privilege, whatever influence, whatever clout he has, he flexes it to exploit the powerless for his own gain, for his own reputation, for his own flourishing. He's got a wicked heart. And why does it focus specifically on the poor? Well, Part of it is because the poor are easy victims. A poor man doesn't have connections. Who will go to bat for him? A poor man may not know his rights. If he is an immigrant, he might be ashamed that he can't speak English very well. And he might not even have the confidence to stand up for himself. A poor woman can be easily frightened and silenced by a powerful man. Hashtag me too would not exist if this were not true. I am not affirming that everything that the me too movement is saying is true. I'm just saying the reason it exists is because this is true. That if she gets pregnant, she might be intimidated, perhaps even into having an abortion. The poor can't hire a lawyer, especially not one who can fight the legal department of a large, of a large corporation or a large government. A poor man doesn't have the clout at City Hall that comes from owning businesses and providing jobs in the community. That's why the Bible commands us, Proverbs 31, 9, to defend the rights of the poor and needy. That can't be over-spiritualized. That is what it looks like to love your neighbor. The wicked man does not love his neighbor. He loves himself. And in verse 11, the rotten fruit of this violent speech and these violent deeds ultimately spring from a presumptuous heart. So we saw in verse 6 that he had a prideful heart. But now we see that all of this springs from a presumptuous heart. He has said God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. 
that wicked men sense no accountability to God. They conclude that God has not stepped in to stop them because he doesn't know or he doesn't care. He interprets God's patience as God's impotence. But the Bible warns us against presuming against God in this way. Romans 2, 4 and 5, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If God doesn't stop you or strike you down when you sin, don't presume that God doesn't care or doesn't see. God is not impotent. God is patient. Patient in a way that you and I cannot conceive. It is an incomprehensible patience that can only come from one who exists outside of time and space and holds all of creation in a single thought. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our, way, than our thoughts. He is not impotent. He is patient. But God's patience has an expiration date. This is the truth that revives the hope of the godly when evil seems to be winning. So what are we to take from these 10 verses, verses 2 through 11? There's probably a lot that we could take away, but I just want to stick on one. And that is, with all of the questioning of why out there, why has this happened? Why did they do this? Analyzing manifestos. Bringing in language experts. Now his S's were curved this way. He's crazy. But what God's word teaches us is that the problem of evil in the world is not fundamentally a political problem. And it's not fundamentally a psychological problem. And it's not fundamentally a sociological problem, though no doubt the absence of dads has a detrimental effect on children. The problem of evil in the world is primarily a theological problem. And you've got to get this as an important category in your mind. Your theology and your morality are inseparable. Your theology and your morality cannot be divorced. There may be inconsistency for a time where what you confess and how you live don't entirely Match up, but in time, your morality will catch up to your theology. We see this even now in evangelical churches. As we begin to rethink 2,000 years of what the church has believed regarding human sexuality and marriage. Morality and theology are inseparable. And so we want to be able to think well about God and his word so that we might be able to walk with him and do justice. To be faithful in this world to the gospel that we proclaim so that we might be able to lock arms together and stand before Jesus one day and we are found to be in Christ faithfully. Theology and morality are inseparable. Why do the wicked do what they do? Their problem is fundamentally theological. It's not to say that these other issues aren't 
also related. I'm saying fundamentally theological. In fact, all of those other issues, psychological, political, sociological, those issues are also fundamentally theological issues. As we've discussed a number of times, there's no more important thing about you than what you think about God. It affects every area of life and society. And so it seems that the evil, wicked man is winning. But God is not impotent. He is patient and his patience has an expiration date. And this in verses 12 through 18 is the truth that revives the hope of the godly when evil seems to be winning. And that's what we're going to see in verses 12 to 18. A godly hope revived. In verse 12, we're going to see an urgent plea. In verses 13 to 15, we're going to see a comforting reminder. And then finally, in verse 16 to 18, we're going to see a new confidence. An urgent plea, a comforting reminder, and a new confidence. He says in verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. That phrase, lift up your hand, is a phrase that suggests a warrior raising his arm in battle. The psalmist is calling on God to be a champion of those who are being trampled. Defend us. Defend your people for your glory according to your promises. That's what he is That's what he is pleading for God to do. And then in verses 13 to 15, he does all of this because he is reminded and comforted by a truth about God. Verses 13 and 14, he's reminded that God is the judge of all the earth. He thinks in verse 13 about the folly of the wicked renouncing God. That the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. Oh, but the godly man says... God takes note of evil and takes it into his hands. The wicked says in his heart, God has hidden his face. But the godly says, verse 14, God is the helper of the fatherless. The wicked says in his heart, God will never see it. But the godly says, beginning of verse 14, you do see. He is reminded of who God is. No no more important thing about you than what you think about God. And as a comforting reminder. And so in verse 15, the psalmist on the basis of this theological reminder calls on God to be true to his word and to act decisively against violence and oppression. He says, break the arm of the wicked. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. Breaking their arm symbolizes breaking their power. You and I should not domesticate God and think that he will not act violently against those who act violently. God is just. Some of you I know, perhaps, or know people who do have a problem with the Old Testament in this respect. How could God act that way? I don't understand when I see God acting violently. God's violence is always against the wicked, and God's violence is always justified according to his perfect judgments. So we need to be careful not to domesticate God, not to turn him into a nice white-haired grandfather that wants us just to curl up into his lap and ask him for candy and quarters. He is, verse 16, the king Forever and ever. And he doesn't play well with his enemies who commit treason. 
And this is the confidence of the psalmist. Verses 16 to 18. He may not get his answer in this psalm. We don't know whether he ever got the answer to the why in verse 1. And by the end of the psalm, he still doesn't know why entirely. But in verse 16, he knows who. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from, you see this, his land. His land will be pure. He will purify it. There will be no evil in the new heavens and the new earth. God will not dwell with it. Verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desires of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. There are times, brothers and sisters, when we ask God, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why does the wicked man seem to prevail? Why is the wicked man seem to have so much power and the poor continue to be trampled. Why does the world seem to be this way? And like the psalmist, we may not get an answer in this life. But we know, verse 16, that God is king. He defends his people. He stands up for the weak and according to his great grace, so do we. We look back at the cross where God's justice was poured out on Christ for all who believe in him. And then we lift up our eyes and we look forward to his return when the very same justice that we see poured out on Christ at the cross will be poured out on every wicked man and woman who reject him. And yet we do not boast in ourselves. We boast in God. Because God is not forgetful. He is not impotent. God is patient. And until that day, his kindness is seen in the preservation of man and in the proclamation of the gospel to all nations so that the redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation might sing with us, Hallelujah, Lamb of God for sinners slain. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ, we praise your name. We seek to guard and protect the poor and we proclaim his gospel to every nation on earth so that all of God's elect may come in to his glory and that we will see in that day how the righteousness of God is fully revealed both in the cross of Christ and in the crushing of his enemies. Let us wait patiently for that day. May the Lord help us persevere by his grace. Let's pray.